All right, it's 10 o'clock. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. Second Kings chapter 5, as you're turning there, I'll remind you last week, we read that King Jehoram received a letter from the Syrian king asking Jehoram himself to heal Naaman's leprosy. But the one who recommended Naaman go to Samaria, which is interchangeable with Israel in many parts of the Bible, in the Old Testament particularly, but it's a city, to go to Samaria, did not recommend Naaman to the king, did she? What did that little servant girl say? Go to the man of God in Israel. Well, King Jehoram got the letter from the Syrian king asking him to heal Naaman's leprosy. And the way Jehoram responded was the subject of the last few moments of our discussion last week. He responded in fear rather than by faith. Jehoram knew he couldn't heal anybody. And he knew leprosy was an incurable disease. And in verse 7 of of chapter 5, he said, am I God? Meaning only God could do this thing. And he even went so far as to claim that the Syrian king must be picking a fight with him. He said, see how he seeketh a quarrel against me by making this request that was impossible. And all Jehoram had to do last week, as we learned, was to tell the Syrian king, I can't heal him but I know one who can. It's as easy as that. Now let's look at verse 8 for the new part of our study. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him, that meaning Naaman, now come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. When you read this verse, think of Elisha as a type of Jesus Christ. Anytime we can learn about Jesus through a type, T-Y-P-E, an example of foreshadowing, then we've learned more than just the history of the Bible. We've learned spiritual truth Elisha is the one through whom God is showing his power at this time in history. And unlike the king's response to the letter, Elisha reacted calmly. I can see his servant, whoever he sent to the king, looking at the king in his torn royal attire and shaking his head and saying, what are you doing? Why did you tear your clothes? We ask toddlers that, don't we? Why did you do that? And what do they always say? I don't know. They just do it. Well, that's what Jehoram did. Listen to 
Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 18. And I want you to compare the response of the disciples in this verse, or this passage, to what King Jehoram's response was, as we read it last week. Matthew seventeen fourteen through 18. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him, to Jesus, a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, for oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Now in that passage, we don't read that the disciples rent their clothes or had a meltdown like Jehoram did, but they were obviously disconcerted that they could not heal the lunatic. Jesus had given them the the power to do so, to cast out devils and, and all of that. And even though they believed on Jesus, he still rebuked them for their lack of faith that this lunatic could be healed. We don't know what all they did, but we know they couldn't heal him. And as Elisha did to the king, Jesus said, bring him hither to me. Now, I hope you're seeing a pattern here. I've visited with several of you and several who aren't here this morning and several who are no longer with us. Over the years, when you've been trying to help someone see the truth, to turn from their sin, Maybe you've tried to encourage them to be faithful in their Christian walk, in church, whatever else it may be. And you've often been stressed out about their lack of understanding, perhaps their apathy or the arguments they give you for not getting right. And I've always told you to give them the truth and then leave them with God. Elisha said, let him come to me. Jesus said, bring him hither to me. And I say to you, to whom I've spoken, and to whom I will probably speak over the years to come, if God wills, that you take your friend, your family member to Jesus, and you leave him there. You leave her there. Yes, we answer their questions. We pray for them. We still love them. But no, we don't heal them, and no, we don't save them. Sending someone to Jesus is not a physical act. We don't say, go see Jesus over here. He's not down here in person anymore. His spirit dwells within the believer. The way we send them to Jesus is by sending them to the Word of God. And we don't just take a Bible and go, here, read that. It'll solve your problems. Well, it will. But as the educated 
Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot said when Philip asked him, Understandest thou what thou readest? What did he say? How can I, except some man should guide me? And that's what we do. We take God's word. We go to that place that we know contains the answer for their problem. And we tell them and we explain that to them. And then we leave them with Jesus. That's all we can do for them. And back in your text, at the end of verse 8, Elisha said, And he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Once you bring him to me, he's going to know that there's a prophet in Israel. This will be the reason he'll heal Naaman. Not for Naaman's health, not for the health and the morale of the Syrian army, not to impress anyone, but that he should know that there is a prophet in Israel. Jesus used this very passage to teach the unbelieving Jews in the book of Luke. He did it in their own synagogue. In fact, he went to their place of assembly. In Luke chapter 4, verses 27 through 28, listen to what it says. This is Jesus talking. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Eliseus. Now, we that's the Greek to English translation of Elisha. In the time of Eliseus or Elisha the prophet. And none of them, how many lepers? None of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Why were they filled with wrath? Well, Jesus had just told all of these religious Jews, the ones who thought they had the corner on the market in religion, he told all of those in the synagogue that the only leper God healed in the day of Elisha was one from a Gentile nation, and that flew all over them. When God brought salvation to the Gentiles, the unbelieving Jews never have liked it. They never have. The Pharisees, who were the most religious of those unbelieving Jews, spent much of their time following gospel preachers, the apostles, following them around and looking for ways to undermine their ministry, imprisoning them, beating them, trying to kill them. In fact, one particular Pharisee gave consent to the killing of Stephen after he preached the gospel. And thankfully, that Pharisee was converted, the Apostle Paul, and became a great preacher of the gospel as we've learned. And we learned that although there was a prophet in Israel, there were no lepers healed in Israel, except Naaman, whose healing we will read about in a few more verses. And this theme, this pattern teaches us an even greater lesson, particularly in the area of preaching the gospel. So let's follow it. In Acts chapter 13, verses 44 through 47, Acts 13, 44 through 47, here's what it says. 
And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. To stop right there. Why were they filled with envy? Because a lot of people went to hear the word of God. How about that? You would think people would say, oh, that's good, that's good. Not Satan's crowd. They were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. That's the Jews. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Now perhaps you understand why Jesus made mention of this passage involving Naaman the Syrian. Not only was he teaching that Israel had been in unbelief, but also that God would be gracious to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Thank God for that. Now look at verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Notice Naaman did not go to the king. That's where the letter was sent. That's the person to whom Jehoram, or the excuse me, that's where the letter was sent. That's the person to whom the Syrian king recommended uh, Naaman to go to Jehoram, but that's not who he needed to go to. Naaman went straight to Elisha's house. And sinner, broken Christian, I send you straight to Jesus. I don't send you to the government for help. When I preach his word is your only hope, then you must go straight to him. You have to trust him for salvation and for all that pertains to life and godliness. In fact, Don't look to me, don't look to your pastor, go to the door, the Son of God. When we speak, the only reason you should hear us is because we're telling you what Jesus said. We don't have our own prescription for your problems. If we did, it'd be poison. It'd be what one of the little girls drew me. I said, what is that? They said, those are wild gourds in the pot. All right. That's all we'd have for you in the flesh, isn't it? Now look at verse 10. Now picture this. Naaman and all of these chariots and horses and his entourage and the silver and gold and the change of clothing, all of that stuff that he brought with him is assembled outside the door of Elisha's house. And look at what Elisha does. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Elisha sent a messenger. Wait a minute. 
You mean he didn't get up from his chair or off his bed and run out and see the great and mighty Naaman, the Syrian, the captain of the host? No, he sent him a messenger. Now, the world would look down on that, wouldn't they? But as long as that messenger gave Naaman the same message that Elisha gave him, all would be well. And as long as we messengers, we preachers, give you the same message Jesus gave us, then all is well with our preaching. And I don't expect you just to trust me. Well, Brother Andy, he'd never lead us astray. His flesh would. That's why this is what we ask you to look at when we preach. This is what we ask you to read. This is how you determine whether what's being said up here is true or not, is by this word, which can be trusted. And it must be. And you don't need to hear this truth literally from the mouth of Jesus because it is the word he spoke and it's the word that he inspired the writers of the Bible to put down so that we may read it and understand it and believe it. Now a person might say, well, it would have been nice if Elisha would have gone to the door and personally greeted Naaman. But was that necessary for Naaman to be healed? Not at all. And so in that verse, if you look back, Elisha told him, first of all, go and wash. Go and wash. He was a leper. He was told to go and wash. And this is not some far-fetched idea that Elisha came up with. In Leviticus chapter 14, verses 8 through 9, Leviticus 14, 8 through 9, it says, And he that is to be cleansed, that is the leper, shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and wash himself in water that he may be clean. And after that he shall come into the camp and shall tarry abroad out of his tent seven days. But it shall be on the seventh day that he shall shave all his hair off his head and his beard and his eyebrows, even all his hair he shall shave off. And he shall wash his clothes. There's the word wash again. Also he shall wash his flesh in water and he shall be clean. So this wasn't something that Elisha just came up with out of a blue. This was actually in the, the law concerning lepers in the Old Testament. And Leviticus 14 and 15 or 13 and 14, there are about two chapters that deal specifically with lepers. And your eyes will cross when you try to figure all that out. You have to read it over and over again. There's a purpose for it. How many days did the leper stay outside his tent? Seven days. What did he do to his flesh? He washed it in water. And then... In verse 10, after he said, after Elisha said, go and wash in Jordan seven times, the next thing was, thy flesh shall come again unto thee. Or in another translation, your flesh shall be restored to you. That is, the, the sloughing off of the flesh that would happen with the leprosy would come to a stop. The flesh would stay on the body because the leprosy is gone. And only when the leprosy is gone could the next thing be what he says, and thou shalt be clean. 
thou shalt be clean. And this is what a leper wants. No leper who's ever lived was content with his leprosy. And no, I didn't interview any of them. But no leper is content with his leprosy. You ask a person who is physically ill today, are you having a good time with your flu or your COVID or your uh, stomach ailment? And they're not going to say, oh, this is wonderful. It's terrible. It hurts. Leprosy hurts. It stinks. It cripples. And ultimately it kills. It separates one from his fellow man. And to be clean from leprosy is to be purified. And this would come when Naaman washed in the Jordan seven times. Now let's make sure we have a solid understanding of how washing in water applies to being made clean. Because boy, there are some uh, cults, denominations who will run away with this. And we don't want that to happen here. We don't want your mind to drift away from the simplicity of the gospel by misunderstanding the relationship between washing in water and being made clean. First of all, it does not mean being baptized in water back here makes one clean. That is not what this means at all, particularly clean from sin. And this is what many so-called churches believe today, that immersing a person in the water of one of their baptistries will wash their sins away. Well, let's see what the scriptures say about that. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. What this verse did not say is that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the baptistry, but by the word, the, the word of God. John chapter 15 and verse 3, listen to how the word clean is used here. Now ye are clean, that word is also pure, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And then the Apostle Paul, addressing carnal people there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, 1 Corinthians 1, 14 through 17, this is a rather odd statement if you just take it out of context. But when you look at it in its context, that you understand what Paul is saying. He said, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the house of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Now listen to this. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Paul draws a distinction between baptism in water and the gospel. In fact, the word but 
in that verse separates those two distinctive subjects there, baptizing and preaching the gospel. It's not that Paul looks down on baptism. He does not. But there were those who esteemed the baptizer too much. The gospel saves. The gospel makes clean. The baptism in water does not cleanse one from sin. Let's look at one more scripture on this. And Brother Fulton taught on this not too long ago in our studies uh, when we studied first and second Peter. So this may not be as fresh in your memory. First Peter chapter three, verses 20 through 21. First Peter three, verses 20 through 21. And I'll start, it's just talking about uh, those who were disobedient in Noah's day. It said, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the Campbellites hang their hat on this verse. And what's funny to me, uh, how many of you have ever witnessed to somebody who was a member of the Church of Christ? Yes. Okay. There's a couple things you need to know. One is those people know their scriptures. They know they can quote certain scriptures. So be ready. You're not dealing with somebody who has no familiarity with the Bible. But when it comes to salvation and, by extension, other doctrines, then that's where the problem is. But the Campbellites will hang their hats on this verse and a couple of others to justify their notion that this baptistry and the process of water baptism is necessary for salvation. But what's funny is the ones to whom I've witnessed over the years, when we ask them, what do you guys do about the thief on the cross? How do you handle that? How do you explain that? The man who was casting insults along with the other thief while they and Jesus were on the cross, and yet that one had the repentant heart and said that he wanted Jesus to, to save him. He gave different words. He said, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. And then that man died on the cross. He never did get to come down and go into a baptistry, much less one in the so-called church of Christ. So how do you deal with that? And of course, they have an answer for everything. They say, well, that was more under the, the Old Testament. And the Old Testament saints, even though it's in the New Testament, the Old Testament saints were, uh, were saved in different ways than the New Testament saints. And that's one thing that they hang their hat on when you ask them about music in their church. Say, well, what about the harp and the psaltery and all that? Well, that was in the Old Testament. So they draw a line as though those were two different books. And that's how, that's one way they get around the fact that the thief on the cross was saved without being baptized in water. He simply believed the word which Jesus said would make him clean. But the verse I just read you in our text, where Elisha said, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. That verse might at first glance lead you 
to believe that there's some merit to water baptism saving. But if, as all verses, if you'll read it in its context and with the companions, the companion scriptures in the Bible, it won't tell, it won't suggest that at all. But in that text from first Peter, I just read you, what does the whole verse say? I'm going to read it with the parentheses and I'm going to read it without the parentheses. As you know, the parentheses are an explanatory measure put into a verse or into a sentence to help you understand what's being said there, and it is the Word of God. But if we read that verse with the parentheses, and I just did a moment ago, let's read it without the parentheses. It says, and I'll just read the last part of it, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Man, when I saw that the first time that I studied this verse, the light went on and it just cleared it up for me. Water baptism, what is it but an immersion into water, an immersion of a person, a sinking of that person into water, and then raising that person back up out of the water. We always do that and we always will. If you haven't been baptized and you're not sure how that works, we'll not leave you down in the water, okay? We'll always bring you back up. That's why brothers Fulton and I work out so heavily, is to never fail at that part of, of our work. And what is resurrection? But that which follows the immersion of a person into the ground after death and them coming back up out of that ground alive after they have died. And Romans chapter 6 verse 4 puts those together. It really helps us understand what goes on right back here. What is it that we're saying back here? What are we testifying of in this baptistry when we baptize a new Christian? Romans 6 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Water baptism is a picture of a burial and a resurrection. And resurrection from the grave is a promise that is pictured for us when we baptize someone. Naaman was told to wash himself or baptize himself in the Jordan River. Many lepers, get this, many lepers had washed themselves in the Jordan, had drunk from its waters, and probably washed their clothes in it. But none of them were cleansed in Naaman's day. Why? Because the waters of the Jordan River themselves could not heal. They had no healing properties. Only God could heal. So Naaman immersing himself in the Jordan River was a picture of a promise that God would restore unto him the life that leprosy would otherwise take away. Isn't that great? What is leprosy a type of in the Bible? It's a type of sin, isn't it? So when I'm baptized as a new convert, I'm telling people outwardly by that, by that action that the sin that put me in the grave for the wages of sin is death, has been taken away. And now I have eternal life. I walk in newness of life. 
I have a new life. It's an eternal one. Well, now a qualified person, Elisha, has given Naaman the prescription for his ailment. So what does he do? Verse 11, back in our text in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 11, but Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to meet me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. It said he was wroth, that's angry, as in the word wrath. Now wait a minute, a leper has gone all the way to Elisha, the man of God, and he has received a prescription that was going to heal his leprosy, and now he is angry about it. Why? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Not only was he angry, but he went away. In John chapter 6, Jesus told the Jews that he was the bread of life. And in verse 58, John six fifty-eight, Jesus said, This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Now those Jews didn't know how to take that. Many of them were offended, and he said, there are many of you who are unbelievers. And if you skip down to verses 66 through 69 in that same chapter, here's what it says. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, to the apostles, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. So although the disciples there had earlier confessed that this was a hard saying, and perhaps they didn't fully understand what it meant, there are a lot of hard sayings in the Bible that we don't fully understand at first glance or even second glance sometimes. We have to study. But Peter nevertheless said, To whom shall we go? Where are we going to go from here? You have the words of eternal life. And even though he may not have understood the significance of all those words, he knew they were words of life, and he would not go away. In our text, Naaman just heard the words of life, didn't he? Go and wash in the Jordan, and your flesh will be clean, and there you go. If he obeyed them, he'd be made clean. If he did not obey those words, he would die. But the text tells us that he, just like many of those disciples in John chapter 6, went away. Now listen to what Naaman said. Behold, I thought. <laughs> he said, I thought. He was angry because what he thought was going to happen is not what happened. And this is what happens when one foot is in the world and one foot is in the Bible. The Bible tells us we have to look to God for the answer to our question. The world tells us 
that the answer must be something spectacular, emotional, something tangible you can touch, something at which everybody will marvel when they see it. He said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me. He was offended, wasn't he? That he, in all of his pomp and circumstance, that entourage he had and all of those precious metals and clothing, standing at Elisha's door, and Elisha just sent a messenger to him, and that offended Naaman. I think Elisha was just checking his pride. God is no respecter of persons, and neither is the man of God, by the way. We preach the same truth to everybody. And I hope that all of the spiritual advisors that the presidents of the United States have ever had were no respecter of persons. I hope that was the case. I've not been involved in any of those conversations, and most of us never will know what was said between the spiritual advisor and the president. But Elisha, he would have probably made some of them mad. I'm certain he would have. They'd have fired him. But Naaman said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me. And Elisha, after all of that, sent a messenger out, says, Go wash in the Jordan River. After all, Naaman was a great man held in high esteem by the king, by the people of Syria. And how dare Elisha not come out himself and do some marvelous thing? What other objections did Naaman have? Back in verse 11, he will surely come out to me and stand. Elisha may have been seated or even lying down in his house. We don't know. But one thing was for sure, he was not impressed by the worldly status of Naaman. And he was also, Elisha was also very comfortable that the words he sent his servant to tell Naaman were altogether sufficient to heal Naaman of his leprosy. He didn't need any spectacular event to accompany the preaching of the word. And we don't either. We don't need to. I remember the first time I heard about one of the very large churches that used to be called Baptist, took the name off. I don't know whether that's good or not, but in, in uh, the area where I live, and one of their members, when I said, well, how was your, how was your resurrection service? Well, they had Easter Sunday. Oh, it was wonderful. Our pastor came in on a zip line. They rigged him up at the top of the church somehow, and he came down on a zip line and flew onto the stage. And I said, oh, okay, well, that's spectacular, all right. That's all people probably talked about when they left. I don't know what he preached, but we don't need any of that. But remember, we're not boring either, are we? Brother Fulton and I are exciting people to be around. We'd rather you be excited about God's Word than about us personally. Uh, when the two go together, it's a wonderful recipe. It says in the text, that he expected him to stand, but to call on the name of the Lord his God. Not only did Naaman want Elisha to come outside and stand, but to call upon the name of the Lord audibly. How does he know what Elisha was doing inside there? He at that very moment may have been interceding in, on behalf of a Naaman to the Lord. He wanted him to call on the name of the Lord Audibly, perhaps in grand fashion, maybe like Elijah did at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves. And you know this audible 
calling, this loud calling out appeals to the flesh. It makes a scene. Some preachers don't think they've preached until they've stomped around all over the podium and screamed and hollered and broke a sweat. They don't think they've preached. They call that preaching with passion. I don't. I just call it a tantrum. Sometimes that's what it looks like. They get mad at people and and all of that. Get in the flesh. And that sort of scene and the one Naaman wanted Elisha to make are usually empty and they're not necessary. I can tell when a pastor, when a teacher is preaching with passion. It has to do with the way they expound God's word. It doesn't have to do with any of the other things. We're all different people. I remember telling Brother Doug when he first uh, thought about trying to teach the Bible. and I said, Brother Doug, he was wanting some, some clues and some hints. This is several years ago. I said, whatever you do, however you learn it, be Brother Doug. Don't be Brother Fulton. Don't be me. Don't be try to be Brother Hensley. You're, you're Doug. And that's who you're going to be wherever you teach and preach. And so it's... Uh, you may have different outward emotions and different uh, gestures and all of that, and the voices sound different and our accents are different. Some of us have higher voices and others lower voices. None of that has anything to do with whether you're passionate about teaching God's Word. So that's this is what Naaman wanted. He wanted somebody who would put on a show. But what Naaman needed was not for Elisha to call on the name of the Lord audibly, but for Naaman himself to call on the name of the Lord, that is to invoke or to appeal to God by believing his word. Romans chapter 11, excuse me, Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, Romans 10, 11 through 14, for the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And from this verse, we know that Naaman's greatest need was first to believe the word that Elisha sent to his servant to tell him. And then he said, I want him to strike his hand over the place. We're closing here with these few comments to strike his hand over the place. Come out there and stand and call on the name of the Lord and strike. That word means to wave or to shake. You know, like one of these things here. That sounds like a job for Benny Hinn, doesn't it? And this is what the world expects when they go for healing to one of these so-called healing meetings. They want a man to come to them at the front of a religious gathering, call on the name of their God, strike their hand over the place where the injury or illness is, and to heal them. The one whose faith is in God's word may be simple, healed simply by taking their case to the Lord, believing what his word says about it, and then resting their case with God. They don't need a man to come to them. They don't need anybody to make a scene over them. And the last request there, actually the last part of the objection is recover the leper. Now that's what Naaman wanted, wasn't it? It's to be recovered of his leprosy, but he wanted it done his way. He didn't want it done the man of God's way or God's way, and that's the plight of the religious world right now. It's 
We want something spiritual to happen, but we want it to happen our way, not the way the Word of God says, because that's not flashy enough for us. Heal the leper, but do it like I said. With that, we'll stop and pick up with verse 12. Any comments or questions about the lesson? All right. And you all, just so you know, anytime you have a question about the lesson, if you say, hey, look, I'm not comfortable asking it in church, that is fine. Come up and ask me afterward. Write it down and give it to me. Or if you're on the Internet, send me a message, and I will be happy to answer you at length if, if need be. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the good attention of those who were here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit who teaches us. And now, Lord, help us to meditate upon the truth that we've learned this morning. And, Father, as we go into the next hour, that as we pray, as we sing, as our pastor preaches and we listen and learn, that all things will be done pleasing to you and that no flesh or fleshly desires would be entertained whatsoever. That you would bind the devil as he would not like to see us have a good worship service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.